came out of a background where we celebrated communion every week. And uh, I wasn't, didn't become a believer until I was almost 20, but that influence for a period of years after that was very powerful in my life. And most people who attend the church after they've been here a few months, if they come on communion Sunday, which is the first Sunday, they know that I see this as a very special time. I, I think of it as a family time when we gather around the table and we are allowed to bring our hearts to God in the way that Jesus himself commanded us to do. And uh, I also think that we live in a very unique time in history in that the, the understanding of the Christian faith, commitment to Christian faith, is rapidly declining in our culture. And it leaves us with all kinds of things that we need to explore. Now, worship, a public meeting for worship, and I don't know where I got this term. I didn't make it up myself. But I think of it as, at least in part, as a sanctioned retreat That is, we're we're agreeing that we're going to meet together, kind of withdraw from the world in its normal sense. We're going to meet together. We're going to focus our attention, our affection on God. And what we need to do when we do that, at least in part, is we need to think about what it means to be a Christian in Christmas season 2017 how Christianity is viewed, how we should act, what we should think, how we should respond to all of the questions that we're facing in the world around us. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to start the Christmas season by thinking specifically about Christmas. Christmas is sort of under fire today, and how should we respond to that? What should we think about? And so I'm going to do kind of a historical survey and explain some things about Christmas that people told me after the first service, they really didn't have any idea. And I hope it's helpful to think about that together because it helps us think about where are we right now in our society, in our culture? What is it that Christians need to be doing right now in order to best represent Christ in the society in which we live. There's sort of a war on Christmas, but I think that's misnamed myself. The, the war is really on religion, and I'm going to explain where that came from. All ideas of spiritual life separate from human material life are under fire. The idea that there is something beyond the material is not readily accepted today. And there are all kinds of implications of that, and one little tiny category that comes out of it is what we call or some people call the war on Christmas. So let's think about where Christmas came from. When you read the New Testament, you, you have to conclude that the earliest Christians didn't give a lot of thought or any attention to what we today call Christmas. They did give thought to the birth of Christ. But when you think about it, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Only two of them have information about the birth of Christ, Matthew and Luke. And interestingly, even though it's apparent that Matthew and Luke were aware of each other's writings, there's dependence between them in certain ways, there's identical wording on certain things, even though they're aware of that, the accounts of the birth of Christ are completely different. There's no indication that they used material that the other used. And now Luke's account comes apparently from Mary. Tradition says that Mary herself was interviewed by Luke in order to write the Gospel of Luke because it's, it's giving information that would be known only to the mother of the child, whereas 
the Gospel of Matthew is written from Joseph's perspective. He was not interviewed. He was dead before the death of Christ, at least. But uh, it, it gives information from the perspective of Joseph that was just read to us. That's interesting. But in the New Testament, there's no indication that the virgin birth was a subject of worship or that the birth of Christ was something that was thought about a great deal, even though the materials were there for the church over a period of time to reflect on. The idea of celebrating the birth of Christ arose over three centuries very slowly as some churches began to reflect on the birth of Christ and celebrate that in different ways, and it began to spread to other churches, and people talked about this as the Christian movement spread and grew very rapidly over the first five centuries of the church. And it wasn't until 350 AD when um, an emperor of the Roman Empire made Christmas a special celebration. First, there was Constantine, who called the Nicene Council to write the Nicene Creed in 325. Constantine, in the 340s, celebrated the birth of Christ on December 25th, but it was an emperor after him a few years who established that as a fixed holiday in the calendar of the church, December 25th. And they chose December 25th for a very important reason. It's because in the Roman pagan cycle of worship, when I say the word pagan, I'm not using like a pejorative term, like you might call someone a heathen or something like that. It's the name of the Roman religion was paganism. In the Roman pagan religion, December 25th was the feast of the winter solstice. Now, the Feast of the Winter Solstice, which technically is on December 21st, um, is, is the changing of the seasons. Up until December 21st, the days get shorter. Daylight declines by a few minutes every day until you get to the Winter Solstice. On that day, it's the shortest day of the year. And from that day, the sunlight begins to increase by a certain number until you get fully to the middle of the summer and the summer solstice. And uh, they celebrated that as the Feast of the Invincible Sun, S-U-N, because the sun begins to increase. And it, we don't know where it came from, but the idea might have been in ancient times that, that the sun actually was dying as it went through the year and its power was slowing, and then it be- came back to life and it grew through the rest of the year. Who knows where it came from? But the winter solstice is celebrated, was celebrated, almost all over the world in every society. We don't pay attention to the stars because we have iPads. But, you know, back in the day, before sitcoms, uh, technology, icons, lights that uh, make the sky unseeable, that's all people did. That's all they had to do was go outside at night and watch the stars and see what was going on, measure the amount of daylight every day, things like that. So the solstices were important, the new moons were important, things like that. That's where it came from. And what the Christian emperor decided to do as the Christian movement was spreading very rapidly at that point in the Roman Empire was to replace the Feast of the Sun with the Feast of the Sun, S-O-N, of God. Now, I'm not sure we might do the same thing if we were faced with the same circumstances today, but it had some real negative implications. What happened is that the Feast of the Winter Solstice was a midwinter festival in Roman culture. It was connected with 
partying, with uh, Bacchus, the god of wine and drinking and things like that, with gift giving, with all kinds of things. And uh, they married that to a festival that was meant to focus on the birth of Jesus in a Christian way. And obviously, that became an uneasy marriage because people were used to celebrating that day in a certain way. And now they could add to it this belief in Christ, but not lose the elements of paganism. Well, that was the story of the church for almost a 1,000 years, or actually more than a 1,000 years after that, till about 1500. The church struggled as it grew through Europe and became more and more powerful. It struggled with the pagan elements and the Christian elements. At times, the church tried to suppress all of the pagan practices of drinking and partying and immorality and everything that went with the Feast of the Sun. And uh, sometimes in some places they succeeded. In other places, the more pagan elements took over. That was particularly in the northern European countries where uh, ancient religions took a long time, many centuries, to wear down. But what happened to next change things was the Reformation in the 1500s. By the 1500s, the church, where it succeeded, celebrated Christmas as an important feast day of the year, but it it, it wasn't given the kind of elements it has today. It was a day to go to church and to celebrate the birth of Christ. It was almost to New Year's, just like it still is, and so there were important things wrapping up. It was a time, and this came out of the pagan celebration, where you didn't work for a few weeks at that point because of the celebration, but it wasn't celebrated like we think of it today at all. At the Reformation, what happened is the church split. And essentially, the Southern Church remained Roman Catholic, the Southern Southern Europe, I'm sorry, and far Western Europe remained Roman Catholic, and all of Northern Europe became either Lutheran or Reformed. And under the Reformed movement, whether it was Lutheran or what is called Reformed now, under that, they made a great change to the whole church calendar. Many of them, and they led to what were later called the Puritans, you know, those people who had never smiled. Uh, Under the Puritans, what they did was they attempted, first of all, this happened for about 50 years, to try to completely suppress the celebration of uh, Christmas in the way it had been done. They tried to erase all pagan elements from it. They didn't like partying and drinking and immorality, so they just made sure nobody did it, and they lost society wouldn't go for it. I mean, think of it. You've celebrated a certain winter festival, which it's harmless in one sense for people to have a, a winter festival, to have a time off in the middle of winter. They celebrated the winter festival for centuries before that. They weren't going to give it up so easily. But what the reform movement in Northern Europe, and eventually it spread to England and then to America, what it accomplished was it was able pretty much to suppress the pagan elements of Christmas. They, most of the Puritans, thought the only real festival in the New Testament is Sunday. Every Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, they called it, is a day to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Nothing else is significant. No Christmas, Easter, those kinds of things. But it didn't work. And so they returned to Christmas and Easter and gave to them some prominence. But it still was simply celebrated. It wasn't connected with family parties and giving of gifts and things like that until the 1840s. Something happened in the 1840s which uh, really changed things. It it was connected with a very famous person in the 1800s. Does anybody know who he was? Say it a little louder so I can hear. What's that? St. Nicholas? No, he was was long before that. He was back then. 
Not Santa Claus? No, you're close, but it was someone you all know named Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens is really the father of Christmas as you all grew up celebrating it. And it came about this way. Charles Dickens was an incredible person. He was very odd, but he, he uh, wrote all of his books in serial. They are all put out in magazines. And so he had to write for most of his life just for a book he was writing, say, David Copperfield, which he was writing at the point when he did this in the 1840s. He had to write 70 pages of publishable material every month. And people waited by their mailboxes every month to get that edition to get the next 70 pages of David Copperfield. It's why all of his novels, of which I think he wrote 12 full novels, are around 840 pages because they were all published in one year, 70 pages a month in one year. And um, he wasn't making enough money, though he was making a lot of money. But he got married. He had like 12 kids, you know, in... 13 years, and they missed a year or something. I don't know. But he, he, he wasn't making enough money, and he figured out he would do something he could write. He'd write something to make a little extra money in 1843, and he wrote the book, A Christmas Carol. He wrote it just to make money, and he made scads of money. I mean, it was like this. People loved A Christmas Carol, and they love it to this day. I mean, they make new movies of it periodically and all of that. He did that for five years. For five years, they're called Dickens Christmas Books. You've probably never heard of them, but I can name them. 1843, A Christmas Carol, and then until 1947, the next one was The Chimes. The next one was The Cricket on the Hearth. The next one was The Battle of Life, and the last one was The Haunted Man. And what Dickens did was he, for some reason, loved Christmas, and he made it a festive time. He was very sentimental in his views of Christianity. To him, Christianity was about being kind to people, being a giving person. He wasn't very interested in the doctrinal elements of Christianity. In fact, in his novels, he kind of makes fun of people like us meeting together and singing songs and stuff like that. But he loved Christianity as a sentimental way of ennobling mankind, making us think higher thoughts, being kinder to other people. And so he created a day, and you can see this in the Christmas books, he created a day in which you give yourself, in which families gather together and they're happy, in which you feast together and eat together. Nobody smokes because Dickens hated smoking. Only smoking in his novels is uh, in David Copperfield. When David Copperfield smokes with some friends and gets violently ill, nobody smoked at his parties, but they drank like fish because apparently he liked that. So what happened was this became so widespread. People read this novel, and they began to recreate it in their homes, and it spread to America. And by the time it came to you in the 40s, 50s, 60s, whenever you were born, 90s, You celebrated Christmas as a festive time, a family time, a time to give gifts, a time in which you uh, help other people, you think kindly thoughts about other people whom you generally hate, you know? That's what you do at Christmas time. It became the Western Christmas. Now, at the same time that was happening, there was another thing going on, and I do have to tell you, everything I'm saying today are my own thoughts. I didn't read this in a book, so... If you like me, you can believe it. If you think I'm, you know, off kilter, you don't have to accept it. (laughs) There was another thing called the Enlightenment, which you've heard of. And the Enlightenment began in the 1780s. A big person in it was Jean-Jacques Rousseau. 
And he, it was really a, an upper crust intellectual movement at the universities in Europe. And the Enlightenment taught things like skepticism. We shouldn't just accept authorities because they've been passed down through the years, including the Bible, that meant. We should test everything. And so people began to write books questioning the Bible in the 1780s. It, it, it taught things like um, human autonomy, that we each have the right to make our own decisions in life, that we should ignore custom and tradition and do what we feel is right. And, and it taught other things like that. For example, it's really the source from Rousseau of the power of the state. He taught, this was not widely accepted, I mean, this was an upper-crust European idea in the 1780s. He taught that the state should take over children and educate them so that they weren't dependent simply on their parents. Well, you understand traditional thinking, including Christian thinking, would be against all of those ideas. But it began to spread. Just a little note about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. What a wretch. This guy was horrible. He, he took a woman as his wife who was like a... He, he was from kind of a noble class. He took this woman who cleaned houses or something, which at that time he would have looked down on. He mistreated her her whole life. He bore by her five children... And each time she bore a child, he forced her to give the child up for adoption by taking it to a place, which was open at that time, for people just to give their children, where 75% of children died who were put in these homes. I mean, this guy was a wretched guy. And he's the guy from which we get so many of our ideas through his writings that have filtered down through the centuries to now we view the state that way. And human autonomy is everything that we ought to think about, and skepticism is how all Americans live. Here's what happened. As Charles Dickens was creating a Christmas that was, by its very nature, a mixture of Christian faith doctrinally, it didn't ignore the birth of Jesus and that kind of thing. In fact, it celebrated it. It was mixing it with non-Christian elements, not necessarily anti-Christian, but just not elements that were connected with the birth of Christ in in the Bible. And people were enjoying that and celebrating it At the same time, the Enlightenment was spreading. It took, I think, the Enlightenment uh, 200 years or a little bit more to infiltrate society. Those ideas of human autonomy, we make our own way in life, we have a right to guide our own ship, there's no one out there. The whole ideas of separation between spiritual and material, and we can't really know the spiritual realm if there is one. All we can know and spend our time thinking about is the material realm. Those ideas all began to seep into society until sometime, and this is very arbitrary, but sometime around 2000, the tide turned. I don't know when it was exactly, but what happened is the Enlightenment won. The, the pagan side won. Here's how I really view it. This struggle between the burgeoning Christian movement in the first centuries and the Roman Empire, that struggle turned about 350 when the emperor said, we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ on the day of the Feast of the Winter Solstice. It turned, and the Christian side began to win, so to speak. And that grew as the church grew and more Christians came, but as the church also declined in the medieval period and grew only in its secular power, not in its spirituality. And, and then there was again sort of a point during the Reformation when the Reformed Christians... 
people who broke away, like ourselves, they, at least for a period of time, suppressed the pagan element by really stressing the birth of Jesus, uh, by being rather strong and saying things like, the only symbolism we accept, the symbolism that God gave us, the bread and wine and the water of baptism, that's the only physical elements that God has said we should use for a spiritual purpose. And they suppressed other symbolic things connected with Christmas. And then it began to turn back the other way. And I would say somewhere around 2000, and we're experiencing it today as time goes on, more and more each year, the pagan side reasserted itself. Now, I may be putting that too simplistically, I don't know, but... I think it explains why what happened in the beginning when Christians tried to suppress paganism in a sense by force, by saying we'll celebrate Christmas on the most important day of the pagan calendar and we'll replace it with a Christian element. And yet in doing that, they married those two things together and there's always been a struggle between the spiritual side and the secular side that has gone on through the centuries right now if I can use the term, paganism, which today is called secular humanism or secular materialism, it has reasserted itself and is seeking to do the same thing to Christianity simply by erasing it from society. Do you see that? Do you see the Christian faith being erased from society? I mean, that that is very obvious. Now, I'm going to give you a a solution to that that I, I think is important, and it's going to be a little bit offensive. But let me just note... Before I get to that, the fact is you can now celebrate Christmas by recording the movie um, Elf, okay, which is really not a very good movie, you know, and uh, by watching the Polar Express and by drinking hot cocoa and putting up a Christmas tree, and you don't ever have to think about the birth of Jesus, Neither of those movies make any reference to why someone is at the North Pole making presents for people. I mean, it did have a Christian background, sort of, where it came from, but you can celebrate it that way, and in fact, millions of Americans will do that. I grew up in a place with a lot of Jewish people, and I had a lot of Jewish friends who went to their bar mitzvahs, and one thing I found out was that most of them celebrated Christmas. And you know why? They celebrated Christmas because everyone else did. And it didn't have anything to do with the birth of Jesus. They celebrated Hanukkah too, but since that was only among such a small sliver of American society, they went ahead and celebrated Christmas. Everyone can do that now, and they do it, but they're erasing all the elements that have to do with Christ. And so here's what I think we need to be doing. We who are Christians now, 2017, during the Christmas season, we need to let the pagans have their holiday. I mean, let them have a winter festival. Let's face it, paganism is an attempt to get now everything that you want, to grab for all the gusto you can get, to have as many sexual relationships as you can, to enjoy as much feasting and drink as you can in this life because you don't believe there's a future time. You don't believe that you could miss something in this life and be swallowed up in eternity in the presence of the living God and that that would somehow be so satisfying that whatever you missed in this life, if you endured an unhappy marriage for 40 years, if you did that, that that would be a drop in the ocean of eternity. You wouldn't even think about that anymore. No, it's to say, I can endure an unhappy marriage, not only for 40 years, I'm not going to endure it for 14 days. I'm going to get out of it and find a new person. 
And you can move from person to person. You can move from job to job, from experience to experience. That's what paganism does. That's all that it is. And they think that for us, life is nasty and brutish and short and all of that, you know, because we're just giving ourselves for something that's pie in the sky that the end's going to reveal to us. That which God has already told us is true, which is that paganism results in eternity apart from God. It is a passing pleasure, as it says in Hebrews, the passing pleasures of sin. 70 or 80 years, or like Hugh Hefner, 91 years, will be looked back upon from eternity as a momentary pleasure given for an eternal unhappiness. And so we ought to let the pagans have their day. Let them celebrate the winter holiday. On one level, there's nothing wrong with a winter holiday. Let them do it in the way that they want and try to suppress Christian faith. But what we have to do is put our focus on Christ. It doesn't mean, I don't have any belief that people shouldn't use Christmas trees or something like that. That's sort of a cultural accretion to the whole thing that I don't worry about. The thing is, we cannot forget that it's about the birth of Christ. I mean, think of this passage that Mary Kay read for us a few minutes ago. It's very brief. It's all that's told in the Gospel of Matthew about the origin of Jesus. It starts with a title sentence. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way. And then it tells the story that Mary uh, became pregnant while she was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothal, by the way, was not quite like our engagement today. A betrothal was and is in many cultures, including Albania, where we often travel and work, it was a formal binding relationship that was pre-marriage, but it didn't leave you free. You couldn't break a betrothal easily. You could, but it was required a formal article of divorce in order to break a betrothal. Betrothal is like a halfway house where you got to know the person in the presence of other people in the ancient world that you were going to marry, but you did not live together or sleep together until you were married technically. So for a woman to become pregnant during her betrothal, which wasn't unknown, usually meant that the engaged couple needed to speed up their wedding day. But what happened in this case was she became pregnant. She found it out a number of months from the same angel before the angel revealed to Joseph that Mary had become pregnant without being married. Now, Joseph knew something. He wasn't the father. So what that meant Before the angel spoke to him, what that meant was that she had been unfaithful to him during the betrothal period. And when it says Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put her to public uh, disgrace, it doesn't put those two things together. We read that to say Joseph was a just man, and what just meant was that he was very compassionate and he didn't want to shame this young woman. And so he figured out another way to do it. That's not what it means. When it says he was a just man, using the word just, as it's used in the Old Testament, it means he was an observant Jewish man. He kept the law. He wanted to serve God in the way that God had revealed to him, and there was no justice involved in marrying a woman who had prostituted herself. And so because he was also compassionate, it does add that, 
He was a just man and not willing to put it in disgrace. He came up with a way to get around it. Instead of a public divorce, which would have shamed her publicly, the law allowed it for a private divorce in the presence of only two witnesses, which would break off the marriage and in society except among those whom they knew. People would not even know that she had been betrothed. She would still be shamed because she was having a baby out of wedlock, but that was his humanly devised and actually just way of handling the situation because he couldn't marry such a woman. But the angel revealed the fact to him. This woman has become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And he's told that he should respond in a different way. Instead of divorcing her privately to try to lessen the shame, he should marry her. Now, what he was doing by marrying her was he was taking responsibility for her pregnancy. He was allowing everyone to consume. I mean, thankfully, the New Testament doesn't even imply that Mary or Joseph tried to explain the virgin conception to anybody. That would work about as well as a 17-year-old doing it today. No one would have accepted it. They didn't try to do that. What he did was he, he married her, which meant in the eyes of society, he was the father of the child that was born. He took responsibility for the child. There's some disgrace in that, but it wasn't certainly as disgraceful as either uh, pregnancy without the husband uh, or the betrothed or uh, a divorce. So he marries her, and the angel says to him specifically, and this is like the key or center of the paragraph, verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's a tremendous verse, just dripping with Old Testament allusions. Bear a son goes back to Eve and the fact, the promise she's given in Genesis chapter 3, that uh, a descendant of Eve will bear the promised seed who is going to destroy the serpent's curse. And when it says Mary in this virgin state, having been impregnated by God, is, <clears throat> excuse me, is going to bear a son, he's going to be the one to fulfill the promise that was given to Mary. A daughter of Eve will bear the promised seed. And it says he will call his name Jesus. That's a very Old Testament name. It's uh, the name Joshua. In fact, there's two places in the New Testament where they use the name Joshua, and it makes people very confused when they first read it to refer to Jesus. Joshua is the Old Testament name. It has two forms, a long form and a short form, just like my name, Thomas, or I can be called Tom. Joshua in Hebrew is Yehoshua, and it refers to, at the beginning of Israel's history, the person who succeeded Moses and led the nation into the promised land, Joshua. Very important person in the Old Testament. And it also refers to a person at the end of the Old Testament with the shortened form of the word stated in Nehemiah, the name Yeshua. It's the same name. It's just the short form. And interestingly, the angel doesn't refer to those two people, which Old Testament readers would have known. Oh, he's being given the same name. He refers to the meaning of the name, which is, in either form, it means Yahweh, the name of God, Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Instead of explaining the allusions to the great leaders at the beginning and end of Old Testament history, what he does is he, he quotes, it's at least an allusion, it's not a direct quote, Psalm 130 that says, the Lord will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And he took from that enough to say, the Lord will save his people from their sins. That's the promise of the Bible. Jesus didn't come to be the little baby in the lap of the Virgin Mary in a painting or a picture. He didn't come to be represented by a Christmas tree. He didn't come so people would simply be kind to each other and gentle and good and that kind of thing. 
He came to save his people from their sins. In this religion, you can call it that, Christian faith, even though the emphasis throughout is on our communal experience, our experience together as the people of God, as the family of God, that's the emphasis of the Bible. So hard for us with enlightenment thinking of human autonomy and individualism, even though that's really true, it's very communally oriented. The whole Bible is, this verse says, it is at its heart about individual salvation. It's about the salvation of individual people. He will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say he will save his people in their sinful state. It says he will save them from their sins. And the whole purpose of Christian faith and the purpose of God's people gathering together in churches as we have here is to be a part of that being saved from our sins. It's the whole process from beginning to end. And when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Christ. We don't celebrate a festival about Christ. We celebrate Christ. In our culture, it happens to be combined with a winter festival. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having a winter festival, though it can be very confusing for people. I can only say, let the pagans have their holiday, and you need to worship Christ. You need to worship Christ. That, that's what it's all about. You need to thank him for the forgiveness of sins. That's, that's the real purpose for which we meet together and do these things. Well, that's been kind of a history lesson. I realize not everybody loves history, but, you know, I think we need to evaluate our place in society. That's very important. That's part of what the church needs to do continually. And as I approach the end of my ministry life, and all I'm saying is that even if I were to be here 10 more years, I've already been here three times that much, so I'm obviously on the downhill slope. (laughs) As I approach the end of my ministry, the more I think, This is what I need to help Christian people do is evaluate who they are, what we're here for, what the church is meant to do and to be. And we are the people of God at the present time, the present age, for whom Jesus gave his life. Now, when we celebrate communion, we have an opportunity to reflect on what that means for us individuals. It's kind of a a time where we can think about our own hearts and souls We can think about our relationship with God, and we can seek to correct some things over the last month that we have done or not done that we ought to do. Ask for Christ's power to live for him. And let's make that, as we turn our attention to the table, an opportunity for that now. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that you have led your people through the centuries, and we are a part of that movement. We are part of those people stretching back to Abraham, and before Abraham, to Noah, before Noah, to Enoch, all the way back to Adam in the garden. We thank you for that, that you have made us your people through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would enlighten us and strengthen us so that we might confidently live for you, even in a time that all those people before us never faced, with the questions that we are forced to ask and answer, that they never had to answer. But you can give us all that we need by your word and spirit so that we are able to confidently live for you, love you, and seek to love other people as well. We pray that that would be the case even this morning, that you would give us fellowship with yourself, communion with yourself, in the way that you have commanded. We ask this in Jesus' name.